This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. It's time for another State of the Vote episode. Once per week, we'll update you on the national political map as voters around the country cast their ballots. This election is unlike any other in history because of the record number of ballots that are being cast by mail. So although we're conditioned to think that Election Day is a one-time event that happens on one day in the year, people are voting right now. They're already dropping off mail-in ballots in states across the country, and early in-person voting and absentee in-person voting is underway in states like Alaska, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Maine, Minnesota, Montana, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio, Texas, and Wisconsin. And millions more voters will head to the polls on Election Day in just over one week. Joining me today is Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike. May I do it again? I eat numbers for breakfast, Madrid. Thanks for being on again, Mike. The people love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Lincoln Project political director, Zach Tchaikovsky. Zach, welcome back on the pod. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. About one third of the total expected voters have already cast their ballots. What are the trends we're seeing on the national political map that voters should be watching, Mike? The main thing you need to be looking for is the uh, sizable amount of the Democratic lead in most of these states. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, but again, as we've been talking about for the past few months, we have to be mindful of the fact that there is going to be a very, very significant Republican turnout on the day of vote. In fact, today, Donald Trump is voting early in Florida, and he is going to start urging his voters to do the same, in large part because Republican operatives are realizing that if they allow this Democratic lead to get so far out, it might be impossible to catch up. So we're recording this on Saturday and Friday, which was yesterday, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled unanimously that county election officials can't throw out absentee ballots with signatures that they deem don't match the versions on file. And earlier in the week, the U.S. Supreme Court allowed a lower court ruling to stand that will allow absentee ballots to be counted if they are received within three days after Election Day, even if they aren't postmarked. So how could both of these rulings impact the outcome in Pennsylvania? And we've talked a lot about Pennsylvania. How critical could Pennsylvania be in determining the winner of this election? So Pennsylvania is the state that really gives me twitches because of the way that it um, allows processes and counts um, ballots. And because it has expanded its uh, absentee and or vote by mail programs 
We've also been, you know, keeping a close eye on it because this is where we've been getting a lot of anecdotal evidence that there's going to be some sort of shenanigans, including the president of the United States saying this on the yeah. debate stage. It's, you know, funny things happen in Philadelphia. I mean, yeah. we take these things very seriously. Look, Ron, these rulings are extremely important and they're very beneficial for enfranchising more voters. You and I have talked on previous podcasts about the number one way to disenfranchise voters is not through voter intimidation at the polls, although that's probably going to happen to some degree and we're keeping our eye out for it. Mm -hmm. The best way to do it is to use the signature verification process to challenge ballots and have them tossed out. This is an extremely significant ruling, which again is a very positive, good ruling for the Biden campaign and Democrats because matching signatures, some of which are a decade or more older, um, it is very, very subjective. It's literally one person um, looking at a usually a microfiche um, example of the registration form compared to the absentee ballot. Mm-hmm. And it becomes up to the, the, the jurisdiction or the, the judiciousness of that one person as to whether or not that signature matches. If somebody challenges it, it gets very precarious. It gets very complicated. And you, you multiply that times thousands of ballots. Yeah. And even with a one or two percent um, invalidation rate, you can see how many, many thousands of votes can get tossed out. So very significant ruling. And those challenges, just so everyone is aware, are, uh, this is uh, probably the most the most high profile example of ballot challenging that we can remember in, in American, you know, uh, election history would be the 2000 case in, uh, in Florida, where you had poll watchers standing over the shoulders of the ballot counters, essentially challenging every single ballot that came from a precinct that disadvantaged their candidate. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so it's the same, it's basically the same process that would play out for mail-in ballots where you would have a poll watcher that was handpicked by each of the presidential candidates who stands over the shoulder and they have a legal right to do that and challenge any ballot that they deem suspicious. And their their rubric for that is going to be whether or not it's coming from a place that that advantages or disadvantages their candidate. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. Geographically, you go into Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, areas of high Democratic concentration, and you challenge as many as you possibly can because mathematically, the chances are those are Democratic ballots. So you can yeah. get those kicked out. Yeah. This ruling says that you cannot use that signature matching exclusively as a reason to invalidate. It's extremely significant. So that's going to be very helpful for the integrity of the election in Pennsylvania. I would I would suggest, yeah. Because we've talked previously about how Pennsylvania is, is looking very good on the political map, but it's also one of the easiest states to steal. And that's, again, has been our main concern. Look, we view Pennsylvania as an insurance state as much as a swing state because it has moved considerably outside the margin of error. It's looking really good. The map generally, I'm going to, you know, look, it's tightening. A lot of these races are tightening up. Arizona's a lot tighter yeah. than we'd like it to be. We're going to talk about Georgia today, which yes. is good that we're talking about Georgia. It's good that we're talking about Georgia. But it is a narrow frame that we're, we're operating in. North Carolina's gotten a lot tighter. Florida is Florida, as we say. Pennsylvania, because it has consistently been outside the margin of error, is a really critical state to the 270 map for Biden. We've invested very heavily there. We're looking very closely. And as Zach will mention in just a minute, it looks like the blue wall may once again be the blue wall that kind of collapsed in 16 is kind of reconstituting yes. itself. Okay, let's get One it. thing yeah. that I want to put on everybody's radar is that the likelihood of, of the election being called in Pennsylvania on election night is relatively slim. Uh, if it's a big Biden lead, uh, then, then it's possible, but in all likelihood, most ballots, about only half of the ballots are going to be counted on election day. So again, it's got to be a big lead for us to know for sure. Right. We should expect to have to wait a little bit, but it's worth the wait because that means every ballot's going to get counted. And we have encouraged patience and vigilance on election night, and that admonition has not changed, right. even though the map looks very good. 
Okay, so let's get into Georgia. Zach, can you set the stage for us by talking about the demographic trends in this state and the shift in voter registration since 2016 and what that means? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important to give credit where credit is due. And Stacey Abrams' organization, Fair Fight, and her campaign have registered hundreds of thousands of voters. So we've seen a shift of about 400,000 new voters on the voter rolls uh, since 2016. Right now, the race is is amongst the closest, if not the closest in the country. And and don't take my word for it. Take 538. They've got it as a 50-50 toss-up right now. Uh, So Georgia, in addition to the presidential, has the two Senate races. So the eyes of the country really should be on Georgia. You've got a dead heat in the presidential. Both Senate races look like there is a path for several candidates. Uh, The special in particular is going to be interesting to watch how it plays out. So we have noted many times on this podcast the significance of COVID in relationship to Donald Trump's depression in his numbers across the country, but especially in the Sunbelt states and the Rust Belt states. But businesses in Georgia have been deeply impacted by COVID-19. Small businesses are down nearly 25% since January. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp has been aggressive in reopening the state and obfuscating the coronavirus statistics. Um how much will COVID impact how voters approach this election and how is the spike looking in Georgia, Zach? So Georgia has never gotten COVID really under control. They've been able to plateau a, a few times, but every time it's been a high case rate. And so they are, I think today will surpass, unfortunately, 7,500 deaths from COVID in total. Um, and from a business perspective, about 24% of businesses that were open at this time last year are currently not open. So the impact has been had uh, and Kemp with the policies that he's putting in place, it's not making anything better. It's not helping the business community because COVID's out of control. Uh, and it's not helping people stay healthy because he refuses to close the businesses. So it's really the worst of every world right now. Let's remember that Georgia, first of all, meets all the criteria that we look for in a Sunbelt state, right? There's these three, the magic three numbers that we're looking for. The first is significant number of college-educated white voters. This is the demographic group that moves away from Republicans the fastest. The second is the 65-plus group, which is an older uh, representation among senior citizens who are directly impacted by COVID in a way that um, younger people are not. And then the third, and this is really important, is there's a very significant African-American population. The black vote clearly uh, energized, clearly mobilized, was in 2018. Uh, I think you're going to see record number turnout uh, in a presidential election. And those three criteria tell us Georgia's a place to be playing. Of course, the polls suggest exactly the same thing. It's a 50-50 toss-up. And we think that Georgia's, um, we can bring this one home. And so here are a couple shifts that we've noticed from 2016 to 2020. Uh, in 2016, Trump won uh, college-educated white voters 69 to 28. Right now, he's up uh, about 52 to 40. That's a gigantic swing. Uh, he won over 65 voters, 67 31 in 2016. And right now he's up 51 41. Oh my God. And this I think is, is exactly why we focus on the Bannon line because yeah. we know we're not going to win seniors yeah. in Georgia. We're probably not going to win college educated white voters, yeah. but if you can move Trump's numbers down, it can still provide a path to victory for Biden. Yeah. Speaking of the senior vote, how unusual is it for a Republican president an incumbent on the ballot seeking reelection to be to be that close that tight among the senior demographic in a in a state that should be a republican stronghold that's extraordinarily rare i mean in fact uh, look no republican president um, has ever won the white house or won their their election effort without winning the senior vote trump won it by about a plus nine Hmm. he's now down at 17 20 in some polls extraordinary shift. Wow. And again, maybe shouldn't be surprising because of the way the COVID yeah. pandemic has been handled. Yeah. There's also a lot of reports out today about 
um, consternation with the way Brad Parscale had set up this the the senile image of Joe Biden and how how viscerally older people reacted mm-hmm. to that kind of attack. Mm-hmm. So um, I think at a lot of different levels, they've given reason for sixty five plus senior citizen voters to be uh, move away from Donald Trump. Okay, on Friday, Georgia surpassed the total early vote turnout in twenty sixteen. Let me repeat that. On Friday, Georgia surpassed the total early vote turnout in 2016. We still have over a week to go before this election, with seven days of early in-person voting to go. We've also seen long wait times at polling places. So what do each of you think is driving such high turnout numbers, despite the long lines that we've seen in Georgia? You know, I think it actually goes back to one of the first conversations Mike and I ever had. And, and I was talking about the 2018 cycle and I said that people just want to go back to normal. And Mike made it made a great point, which is it wasn't that people want to go back to normal. They were rejecting extremism. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now in, in, in this election is that people, they don't know what normal looks like. They don't know maybe what they want their government to look like, but they know they don't want it to look like this. And Trump is the reason for that. Um, and you won't see a change until we change our leadership. There's also a lot of discussion about whether or not this significant early vote is cannibalizing the day of vote for Democrats. I personally do not think that it is, but there's a lot of people that, you know, data analysts that are looking at it and saying, we had these enormous swells for the first three or four days. Now, you know, three hour waits times, they have dropped to under 15 minutes. I would suggest that that's to be expected. The key is really, are is it going to say a steady stream up until election day? If the vote count, the numbers keep coming in at even close to the pace that they are right now, we're going to have a record turnout by a wide, wide margin. So I'm optimistic that we're going to have a record turnout in this country. I think that people have been waiting for years to for, for this election, and um, the day is upon us, and that's what's going to, I think, manifest. Yeah, go ahead, Zach. You know, and I think who knows what... what amount of voter suppression is going to take place, but clearly there is a perception and a belief that some of it is going to occur. And I think that has made people more resolute in their, in their votes. So when you see somebody standing in an 11 hour line, two weeks before the election, they really want to make it happen. In the height of a pandemic. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think that's the belief that people don't want them to make their voices heard is really powerful. And I think it's going to have a kind of a a backlash. effect. Yeah. Yeah. The defiance and the bravery it takes to stand in hours long lines. Sometimes all day you might be standing in those lines. We've all seen the pictures. It's just, it's incredible. On that note, I want to take some advice from my mother. Uh, Bring a folding chair with you, bring a little (laughs) bit of water, bring a snack, bring a good book, bring your headphones uh, because we don't know what the weights are going to be everywhere, but some of them are definitely going to be long. So please come prepared when you go vote. And if you've already voted and you want to do something to help and you are comfortable doing so, I'd encourage you to go down there, bring bottled water. If it's raining, bring an umbrella. Uh, go encourage those people who are standing in lines because a lot of them, probably most of them have much better places to be than standing in a line the entire day to vote against Donald Trump. So did you all see the the footage from Florida of like the absolute downpour and people standing in line, yeah. no umbrellas not oh going anywhere? Gosh, yeah. It was so yeah. motivational to yeah. see because people are really res- resolute. So Georgia has two different Senate races in this cycle. Can you talk about the Purdue-Ossoff race in this special election that's coming up, Zach? Absolutely. So, you know, I think Georgia is the only state in the country with two Senate races. It's, it's not something that happens very often. Uh, on the one side, in the traditional, regularly scheduled election, you've got John Ossoff versus Purdue. Um, Ossoff is a young guy, used to work for John Lewis, a Georgetown man like our uh, Mike Madrid. So, and that's about a dead heat right now. Um, Ossoff has been well-funded. He famously ran against in, in 2017, uh, and raised, I think more money than any other congressional race in history. So 
talented fundraiser, good speaker, um, and has a real shot to win. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, the other race is where it gets a little bit trickier. Uh, we've got two Republicans, Collins and Leffler, both of whom have done everything in their power to cozy up to Trump. Uh, perhaps Collins has done so a little more effectively than Leffler. Uh, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. her own WNBA team hates her at this point and has endorsed Raphael Warnock, so I don't think she's doing too great. Uh, but she also put $20 million of her own money in, and that always helps. Uh, on the Democratic side, you've got three folks in it. You've got Warnock, who has emerged as the front runner, endorsed by Stacey Abrams, the DSCC, most fundraising. Um, and then you've got Matt Lieberman and Ed Tarver uh, also running. And, and so it's going to be very difficult for Warnock to get to 50. So in all likelihood, there will be a runoff um, between, between Warnock and either Leffler or Collins. However, there is a world in which uh, Leffler and Collins advance to the runoff uh, because it is a top two primary. So the top two vote getters, if no one gets to 50, move on. And that's going to be on January 5th. January 5th. Okay. So in the, in the, in the election for November 3rd, the general coming up, how should we be thinking about the turnout for the Senate races versus the presidential races and, and the enthusiasm gap, if there is one between the, you know, the presidential race and the Senate races? It's actually been pretty fascinating. In most cases, we've seen the Senate candidates running behind Trump. There's a couple exceptions like Cory Gardner uh, is outperforming Trump. And I think Susan Collins is as well. But other than that, you know, they're, they're, they are a drag on the ticket, if anything. So I think if Georgia flips for and goes for Biden, there's a very real chance that John Ossoff is going to the Senate. And there's a very real chance that uh, Raphael Warnock will be advancing to the runoff or getting close to 50. Yeah. It's tough to see how he gets there, though, unless Biden wins comfortably. And I don't know that a Democrat's going to ever win comfortably in Georgia in 2020. Yeah. And Mike, that's something we've seen around the country with these Senate races that the Lincoln Project has been attacking, where the Republican incumbent one of Trump's enablers who we've been we've been attacking ends up being a drag on the ticket. Yeah, especially in these targeted seats. Um, when we talk about Martha McSally in Arizona, Cory Gardner, Zach just mentioned in Colorado, Tillis in North Carolina. Um, there are a couple of exceptions as the map has expanded for us on the Senate side. Um, again, the good news is you've got us playing in states like Alaska, Montana, Mississippi, I mean, these are the deepest. Alaska. 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 Mississippi. I mean, come on. It's like Kansas. Kansas. Alaska is a swing state. Alaska (laughs) is a swing state. I mean, who would have thunk, right? I mean, we're we're two weeks out and we're looking at these states and it's like we have to like run entirely new data sets going. We never imagined we would be looking at these seats six weeks ago. Um, And and again, I'm not suggesting that we're going to bring all or even some of them into into the win column. But the fact that we have to take a deep look, that we have to make you put creative together and we have to start doing a voter analysis is really telling about what is happening with the shifting map. It's flattening. It's expanding. It's by far the largest battleground map I've seen in my adult life. Uh, Trump is clearly a big part of this, the anchor that he has been on the Republican brand, but it's also symbolic of a lot of realignment that we've been talking about over the past few months. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about how the the map is flattened. We've talked about this on previous on previous podcasts, but I want to I want to re up that 
thread of the conversation as we go into this final week of the of election day uh, of the election. So the map has flattened, and now we're actually starting to see some of these races tighten. Yes, and uh, and I think there's probably some legitimate anxiety out there mm-hmm. um, on among our listeners. So can you talk about the impact on the electoral map flattening and and how we should be thinking about the races like in Arizona tightening and 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 in some other places? Yeah. So um, and again, this debate has been going on back and forth, and if if you're following the poll. Uh, really closely, which I hope everybody is not too closely because <laughs> half of America would not be sleeping if you were, you know who I'm talking about, listeners out there. Um, look, the, the race, I believe, is tightening. I think it's in a tighter range than most of the public polls are suggesting. I think it's actually even a little bit tighter than what The Economist and 538 are suggesting. Um, having said that, it's also expanding. It's flattening, as we've been saying. And what that means is the demographic changes specifically within the Republican Party, this gen- this gap, excuse me, I was going to say gender gap, although that's part of it, is this education gap between college-educated white voters and non-college-educated white voters has become a chasm. And this split has forced a whole lot of other states into play where they would not otherwise be. This split, again, this rift is probably going to um, what happens with this split is going to define what happens to the Republican Party post November 4. It's something I'm sure you'll hear us talk a lot about mm-hmm. as a Lincoln Project mm-hmm. going forward. But for the moment, it has put states like Arizona, Texas, Georgia um, squarely into play where they would not otherwise be. So you have a much broader map than we have before. And and there's a couple ways to look at this. The way I'm choosing to look at it is the flatter it gets and the tighter it gets the harder it is numerically for Donald Trump to win because he has to win all of them. If, however, we do see a demographic spike, for example, an overperformance of non-college-educated white voters the way we saw in 2016, there's absolutely a roadmap for him to kind of win this thing. And it's why we are looking at Pennsylvania not as a swing state as much as an insurance program. If we can put Pennsylvania away, uh, the roadmap gets significantly narrower for him. And when you start talking about a couple of other states like Wisconsin, um, it gets very, very difficult. And so there are a couple of states in the Rust Belt, that blue wall, that 2016 uh, collapse of the blue wall, if it is resurrected, if we can kind of put it back up, um, the chances of a Biden election get significantly greater. Go ahead, Zach. So- one of the things that, that certainly gives me cause for optimism, though, is that we we don't know what enthusiasm is going to be like for Trump because so many of his folks are going to be day of voters. Um, but we do know that Democratic enthusiasm is off the charts. So, so far of the African-American voters in Georgia, 22.6 of the folks that have voted this year uh, didn't vote in 2016. That's 135,899 people as of taping. So they'll probably be a little different. when you just in Georgia, right? Just in Georgia. Uh, Trump's margin in 2016 in Georgia was 211,000. That's 64% of wow. the margin made up already. So wow. if we see these kind of sporadic voters or folks that aren't normally mm-hmm. activated showing mm-hmm. up, uh, especially before election day, I think we can feel cautiously optimistic, but we have to keep the momentum going, just like Mike said, because if these numbers trail off for the next week, yeah. then we're not going to have the yeah. banked votes that we need going into election day to pull this off. So yeah. Yeah. please make sure you get out there and vote early, folks. Yeah. There's a couple of other things that are really important to mention as Zach brought up those numbers. The first is as COVID starts to flare up significantly pretty much everywhere, the propensity or likelihood for day of voters to show up could be diminished. Um, that's problematic for Republicans. Uh, the other is 
with such a sizable amount of people having already voted, I mean, Ron, you said it in the intro, a third of the voters have already it's voted. It's 33 nuts. to 35% as of last night. Yeah the, yeah. the stability of the race gets even more cemented. Yeah. The, the chances of an October surprise or late breaking news moving public opinion um, is diminished greatly every day. So every day that goes by, the race is actually um, stratifying even more. It's getting locked in cement even more. And the polls, as they have been sitting for six to eight months, become more reliable because that voter movement is not happening and more and more votes are banked. So every day is an election day, as we say. There will be a late Republican surge on day of specifically, but every day that goes by with so many millions of votes being cast, the race gets harder to change the trajectory of. Yeah. And the takeaway here ought to be that we're not taking our foot off the gas because this thing is not over. No, it's not over. No, no. Definitely not. Right. Um, All right. So before we let everybody go, how cool is it this year as political nerds that we're watching this sort of unprecedented uh, event take place. In American political history, we've never had an election like this. So what is it like for you to watch this play out? There are so many aspects and ways to answer that question, which is what makes it all so cool. Um, and Look, I'm most excited by the, the size of the battlefield, the battleground maps, because it really tests your discipline as a strategist, given limited resources and seeing opportunities and realizing that, hey, wait, maybe we should or shouldn't go in there. Zach and I have this conversation four or five times a day. (laughs) Hey, is that real? Is that not real? Let's look at it. We run it by the data team. We run them through the traps. Um, It has really challenged my you know, experience, 30 years of experience as a strategist. And I keep coming back to and try to try to, you know, mentor the younger folks in the shop by saying, you got to stick to your plan before you got to be darn certain if you're going to expand. But this race, this year has really, really challenged everything that I have known about the, the, the strategic underpinnings of what we're doing. I think we still have a very sound strategy, very sound, but when Mississippi comes into play yeah. and Kansas is in the hunt and Montana's yeah. there and Alaska, yeah. you kind of got, you have to really take a deep breath, take a walk around the block and say, really rely on your team and follow the data. Yeah. It's incredibly helpful have, having, you know, Mike's guidance and, and, and wisdom on this because there are moments where, you know, we'll hear Mississippi's in play yeah. and, you know, we hear that and we're kind of like, Wait, come what? on, man, really? Yeah, right. Because, because yeah. for people who do what we do, that's a non-starter, right? Yeah. That's like conventional. Like, we don't even talk about that. Right. No, but this year is completely different. And it's why it's so, you know, just from a pure, from a practitioner's standpoint, it's very exciting. It's very new. It's incredible because, you know, I think normally it's the same States pretty much over and over and over again, and you get to know them pretty well and you get to know some of the quirks about them. You have contacts there. And then you hear a state like, you know, let's say Kansas is coming into play and and you kind of look around like, all right, well, like, where do we go in Kansas? Like, where do we even start? Uh, and you kind of get to really apply your craft for yeah. the first time again, almost yeah. because, uh, it's tough to go in without assumptions, but we do our best to, and just stay in the numbers. And, you know, Mississippi is winnable. Yeah. Doug Jones might actually pull this off down in Alabama. We might see a poll showing in single digits in one of the Dakotas. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's how flattened this race has gotten. And it's exciting. Yeah. And it's a little bit scary because you say, okay, 
Yeah, there's conceivably 17 states that are swing states yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Where do we want to put the money? Where do we exactly. want to put the resources? Exactly. Uh, it's a yeah. good problem to have though. It's uh, a good problem to have, but but also our listeners should understand that the decisions that we make at the Lincoln Project in terms of where and how to spend money are extremely uh, thoughtful. And it's because of this flattening of the map and how closely uh, the data team is, is watching the numbers as they come public polling and internal polling. With so many tight races, we have to be very, very thoughtful and selective in terms of where we spend our money, where we did, because time is money as well. Not just the, not just the funds that, that our grassroots supporters send, but, but also the ticking clock right? Because there's only so much time available in the, in the run-up to election to actually move voters. And we know it takes time. Yeah. And there's so many other variables like yeah. the, the vote by mail demographics yeah. switching um, completely, right? Normally it benefits the Republicans. Now it's the Democrats. Right. What is the pandemic going to do? We're literally following COVID data county by county throughout the entire country to assess what turnout models are going to look like and what the president's approval ratings are going to be like. How does that match with where our spend is going to go? Yeah. Iowa moves into contention. It was a plus nine. Now it's uh, plus nine for Trump in 2016. Now it's a plus two for Biden. What does that mean in conjunction with the overall Senate race mm-hmm. that is sitting beneath it? Mm-hmm. There are so many variables and prioritizing that is extraordinarily difficult, but it is, like you said, it's, it, 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 it's kind of exciting. Re- it's fun. I mean, it's it, fun. It, it, yeah. it really is. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's pushing you to the best of your abilities and testing who you are at, in yeah. 30 years of, of experience. Yeah, yeah. Something that I'm, I'm really proud of is that we went in early to a lot of these places. We went into Arizona in June, I believe, with a million-dollar buy against McSally. And I think traditionally what a lot of PACs and campaigns do is they kind of keep their budget really low. Yep. And then the last few weeks of the election, they just dump money in when everybody else is. Yep. Uh, that would not have been an efficient spend for us. We're right. a PAC. We don't right. get candidate rates on TV. Right. If we'd just been hoarding all of our, all the money we've raised until now, yeah. it wouldn't cut through the noise in the same way. So I yeah. think we really... We're strategic with the timing of our buys in addition to the location of our buys. And I'm really, really proud of the team uh, for that. And I think, you know, huge credit to the founders for, for being willing to take that chance and kind of buck conventional wisdom a little bit. Yeah. All right, guys, before we wrap up, are there any thoughts you'd like to offer our listeners in this final week of the election? We will have one more state of the vote episode and that will come out on the day before election day. So between now and then, it's crazy. I know that's where we are. One more of these episodes. Not that the podcast is going away. Don't worry, folks. But what would you say to our listeners in this final stretch, whether they have voted or haven't voted? You know, I think the difference between this race being really, really close and unpredictable with which way it's going to go and a blowout is smaller than any other in modern American history. And that's because of the flattening we've been talking about. Stay vigilant, uh, stay resolute. Make sure that you get not just your votes in, but everybody around you gets their votes in because this thing could go either way. Uh, We cannot get comfortable. We have to keep hustling. And I think if we continue to show up at the rates that people are showing up, this can be a decisive victory for Biden and a real rebuke to Trump and Trumpism. Uh, And it's so critical that this isn't just a win, that it's a decisive win Mm -hmm. because Trumpism is here to stay, Mm -hmm. uh, especially if it's close. And so Mm -hmm. we have to make it clear that this is a line of thinking. This is a worldview that is not welcome in our country and not a viable path to power. Here, here. Let me just say this. If you've already voted, if you're one of the many tens of millions of people that has already voted, you have an obligation to reach out and find out that, you know, find somebody else who has not voted. Mm -hmm. That is literally the best thing that you can do. A lot of people with this early energy, early enthusiasm, 
Um, got out there and voted, which is awesome. It's yep. fantastic. It's banked. Keep but there's going. seven to 10 days. Just get one more. Just go get one more. Uh, that If everybody got one more, this would be a decisive victory. This would be a blowout. And that's the way you need to look at it. You got yep. seven, 10 days to do this. Find that one person. Work it. Um, reach out. Use social media. You know, it, it will make a difference. The math makes a difference, especially in a race that is this flat. If you're in one of these 17 states, or if you know somebody in one of these 17 states, Make sure people vote. Ron, what do you think? What, what would, what would what? you say to folks with like a little bit over a week remaining? <laughs> oh my God, exactly Mike the same the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Go find your family, your friends, your, your neighbors, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, everybody you know who hasn't voted yet and you know how to do it, go tell them. There's no excuse. You don't have to tell them who to vote for. Make sure they vote. And guys, uh, we can't talk about George without saying something very important. Go dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone at home for sticking around. And thanks to Mike and Zach for making the time to have this conversation. I know that we are all extremely busy in this last run up to the election. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.